0: If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Romans chapter 3. We'll soon be reading verses 9 through 20 in that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find Romans chapter 3 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. And you can find Romans 3 on page 940 of that Bible. I can imagine that being a physician is an incredibly daunting task. Indeed, it is a field of work that takes an incredible amount of study. From everything I have seen on TV, which I know is true and accurate, the residencies are grueling. The hours are horrible, they are intense. This is probably the reason why they are paid a good deal more than almost any other profession in our country. However, I would also imagine that while the studying is difficult, while the residencies are grueling, While the work itself can be difficult, perhaps the hardest part of being a physician is having to look people square in the eye and give them bad news. Looking at a person and telling them that they have inoperable cancer and only months to live. Informing a wife that her husband did not pull through the surgery. Frankly, admitting to people who look at you as though you're some sort of modern day magician and can heal anything with the technology that we have, that you are all out of options. And there's nothing more you can do. No one likes to give bad news. I'm sure that there are people out there who would love to give bad news to certain groups of people that they hate or certain people that they hate, but outside of a certain group of sociopaths, uh, most of us don't like to give bad news. It's uncomfortable. And for many of us who have to give bad news, whether of the religious type or of just the normal everyday type, there are some times where we have good, bad news to give to people with no way to buffet the pain or the sorrow that will be delivered to them. Our lot as Christian ambassadors is different than this. There is indeed bad news, and frankly, it is much worse than any that a doctor has had to give. For a doctor, at his worst, has to give notice of a termination of life that is either coming or has happened that everyone in that room knew was a possibility. Everyone understands that life will one day come to an end. But our news is of a rather different variety. It's not just of death, but is an a-terminus death. It is death that is never finished, death that never ends. It is bad news that doesn't end on a specific date, but goes on and on, is a death that never stops, pauses, or comes to a rest. A death that lives on, in, and around us forever. For our bad news is the wrath of God upon all people. And that due to our sin, we will one day die, if left in our sin, eternally, painfully, and consciously. This is precisely the point that Paul has been pursuing now for at least one and a half chapters, if not two full chapters. Before we can get to the good news, Paul wants us to emphatically understand the bad news. And so Paul finishes argument for the universal bad news of our sin today. Let us read of this and stand in awe at the word of God as we read Romans 3, 9 through 20. Is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the inerrant, infallible word of our God. First, as we look at what Paul writes here, let us see the charge of sin Paul first brings to us the charge of sin. He starts by saying, are we Jews any better off? He he has just gotten done in chapter 3, up a couple of verses, saying that yes, much in every way, we have advantages, we have value. Here, when he asks the question, the answer is a no. It's not though he's playing one off the other, but he's saying there are indeed advantages to being a Jew. We have the oracles of God, we have the promises of God, but when it comes to salvation, this doesn't give us a leg up. Simply to know of the promises of God doesn't mean that God will save you. Your sin cuts you off from those promises. It's important to note here that Paul charges sin. He accuses of sin. He doesn't prove. I think this matters when it comes to doing evangelism. And it matters when we tend to talk to people about their sin. Ray Comfort does a lot of proving to people that they're sinners. If you've ever heard heard him do evangelism, or watched him do evangelism, he typically takes the Ten Commandments and he will try to get people to admit, hey, I don't follow that like I ought to. I do actually sin here and I sin there. And he, he will work with people and talking to them and asking questions to them to lead them to a place where they, they admit that they're a sinner and then talk to them of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. I think this is fine for what it's worth. But I'm not sure that people really need their sins proven to them. Frankly, I'm of the opinion that proof is quite a bit overrated because the issue is not one of the mind. It's not one of the intellect. It's not one of the head, but it's an issue of the heart. We don't need to understand that we're sinners so much as we need to feel as though we are sinners. This is a problem we've fallen into which I think comes from the very earliest parts of the Enlightenment, we want things proven to us because we think that that's where our assurance lies. Our assurance lies in some sort of mental gymnastics and proof. We think that we can prove things to others. And what's more, without proper proof, people won't believe. We've heard people say that. Unless it can be proven to me, I won't believe things. I'm telling you, people believe things all the time that they don't have proven to them, all the time. People don't need proof to believe. We don't need to prove their sinfulness to them. What Paul is doing is simply accusing them of sinfulness. Indeed, sometimes we can prove things to people. Let's be clear, the intellect is not what drives humans alone. Certainly, I would say, it's not what drives them towards repentance and faith, but it is an issue of the heart. Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. He wanted to cancel out all kinds of doubt in his life, but one thing he couldn't get rid of was the fact that he existed because he was the one sitting by that fire thinking. The rest of modernity came along and thought that intellectual proof and mental assurance were the most important things in life, and we bought into those things. And we think that those things are also most basic. We tied these things to evangelism and taught them as being most important as well. We have to prove that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. We have to prove that he is the son of God. We have to prove that people are actually sinful. These things, friends, I do not think are so. I wonder what would have happened to the last 500 years if Descartes had simply written something that was just as true, but very much different. If instead of saying, I think, therefore I am, if he would have said, I feel, therefore I am. Nevertheless, We ought to have no concerns about proving sinfulness to others. Paul simply lays the charge down. If scripture is not in the business of proving, then we ought not be in the business of proving. Paul simply says, this is the charge that we've been making. All are sinful. We don't just need understanding, but feeling, or to put it differently. We don't just need cognition, but conviction of our sin. And secondly, you'll notice that Paul mentions sin specifically. He says, no, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He doesn't say that they're under brokenness or fallenness or the fact that the world's a dark place or that they are victims or argue that we are in disrepair or malformed. Paul is not simply saying the world is this incredibly messed up place that God has come to rescue you from, although he does say that. Galatians 1.4 four. Paul remarks that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He has indeed come to rescue us. It's not that all of these things are false. There are many who live incredibly broken lives because the world broke them first. There are plenty of people in the abuse that they have seen around them and the abuse that they have gone through who lead abusive lives themselves. They have had sin thrust upon them as much as they have sinned themselves. We do indeed live in a fallen and a broken world. But if all we can ever talk about is our fallenness and our brokenness, then we lose what philosophers and theologians call agency. We are not actually doing anything. It's everything which is happening to us. And our real problem is not what we do, but the things that are done to us. Paul simply doesn't let that stand the charge is that all are under sin, that all indeed have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are not just objects that brokenness and fallenness happen to, but we are agents that bring brokenness and fallenness into the world and perpetuate that which is already there. And here we find this really beautiful balance to what Paul has said earlier. For the past three weeks, First. I said it, and then Josh reiterated it, and then I said it again. That God is not just a God who is concerned with forgiving you. That you must, in salvation, be given a new heart that then longs to do the will of God. And you should see fruit in your life. Last week, I kind of honed in on the idea that Jesus is not just going to forgive you, but he will heal you. It's right and true. It's good. We need to hear that. But we need to understand that there are ditches on both sides. We cannot just emphasize that Jesus heals people unless we emphasize that they also need forgiveness. They are not just broken, they are sinners. But we also cannot just emphasize that he forgives without healing them. Ironically, when either one of those is emphasized to the exclusion of the other, it only leaves us in our sin if he forgives alone and is happy to do so, if that is his purpose, and if all of your sanctification is going to come in one happy and miraculous moment when you are resurrected from the dead, perfect again, why struggle? Why work? After all, he will forgive. If he heals, and the point is just to heal me, then I can simply live out my sin, as many people call authentically, And by living authentically, I'm simply waiting for Jesus to heal me because it's not an issue of what I do, but an issue of what is done to me. Either ditch leaves us in our sin, but God calls us out. Be holy, for I am holy. Paul insists that the charge is about our sin, that we have sinned and we need forgiveness, that we have sinned and we need healing. This past Wednesday, during prayer meeting, again, I would encourage all of you to come to as much as we encourage community groups, prayer meetings, a wonderful time to read and to think through the words of God. We sang one of my favorite hymns that captures this balance perfectly. It's called Rock of Ages. The first stanza of that hymn says this, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood From thy wounded side which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, forgive me, and make me pure, and heal me. That is the the solution that Jesus holds out to you. It is not one, and it is not the other, but it is a double cure. Because we are indeed under sin. When Paul uses that kind of language, what he means is that sin has a power and an authority over you. You are not just a sinner, but you are held under the sway of sin. It is sin that drives you. It is sin that gives you your desires, your cravings, your lusts, your purpose, your hope. Sin is your master. This makes you both sinful and hopeless to fight against it. Paul Wishes to emphasize the universality of this. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. No power is given in the world that will allow us to escape and to break this influence over us. The law and circumcision cannot do it, your willpower on its own cannot do it. God can never give us a stark enough picture of hell. That will scare us into doing what is right. Nor can he give us enough words of his beauty and his power and his glory to entice us to do what is right. We are all under the power of sin and held and trapped. Paul charges all with sin. But secondly, then he goes to the collection of scripture. The collection of scripture. Many might argue that Paul, and many have argued that Paul, as he charges us with sin, is just kind of, to put it fairly loosely, making this stuff up. E.P. Sanders famously looked at Paul's life and looked at the conversion of Paul and looked at the centrality of Christ in Paul's thinking. And as a theologian, he said, listen, what Paul has done here is Paul has found a solution. On the Damascus Road, the Lord Jesus Christ showed up and Paul immediately knew that he was indeed the Christ, and he was the answer to everything in the Old Testament. But like a character out of Doug Adams' a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Paul now had a solution to the universe without knowing the question. And so what Paul has done is tried to figure out what the problem was that this Jesus was the solution to. And his answer was sin. It must be sin. Much of this is based on the fact that, quite honestly, the Jews didn't seem to have the same problem or the outlook of sin that Paul has. He makes this problem of such a grand magnitude that nothing other than God mysteriously and miraculously clothing himself with flesh could fix it. This is not an opinion that the Jews shared anywhere. So his whole point in saying that Paul found a solution and then went in search of a problem is not without merit, but it needs to be tempered. Paul likely did find his solution in Jesus, and then he had to ask how this fit in with everything else, but Paul knew where he would find that answer. That answer was not in his own thinking. That answer was not in his own conception, but that answer was in the very words of the Old Testament. So Paul says here, as it is written, We are charging you with sin. But we're charging you with sin not because I'm making it up. Not because it fits my scheme. I'm charging you with sin because that comports with what the Old Testament says. It is indeed the revelation of the Old Testament that leads Paul to this. Just because he didn't see it before doesn't mean it wasn't there. Paul just saw it for the first time. And what he found Especially in the Psalms, where references replete to the fact that we have no righteousness on our own. The collection of scripture here is taken from a variety of places. Psalms 5 verse 9, 10 verse 7, 14 verses 1 through 3, and its compatriot Psalm 53. Psalm 36 verse 1, 140 verse 3. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. A section from Isaiah, from Isaiah 59, verses 7 through 8. What can we say about this list? What can we notice about it? First, as I've said before, one of the things that this proves really helpfully is this is not pulled from one source. Where David is having a really bad day, and he's pulling his hair out, and he's saying, is there no one who is righteous? He got up and his generals were showing themselves inept and they weren't following his orders. His wives were bickering at him. His sons were plotting sedition against him. The Philistines were attacking from the east and the Assyrians from the north. And he thought, is there no one who is righteous? Just having one of those no good, very bad days. Rather, because Paul is pulling this from any of a number of different places, it's not just one bad day. It is a collective witness of Scripture. Secondly, while some of these psalms are pointed attacks against enemies, and we would therefore rightly assume that if Paul is talking about his enemies, he would declare that they were not righteous, it's clear that not all of these places are talking about the enemies of God. So when Paul quotes them, He quotes them as though they're talking about the enemies of Israel and about Israel. He talks about the others, and he talks about himself. Paul obviously believes this applies to the Jews as well, because he says both Jews and Greeks are under sin, just as Scripture says. It is important because these are not just about the people who have this incredible disrespect of Christ. It's not just about people who are fervent in their idolatry or people who are contemptuous of the gospel. But it is true even of people who believe in Jesus Christ. Even of people that Paul would consider brothers and sisters in the Lord, he's writing to these people, calling them brothers and sisters, calling them saints, and still saying, you are wicked sinners before the Lord. It is worth noting that one of the earliest philosophical documents written against Christianity in the Greco-Roman world, where a philosopher actually took his time to look at Christianity as Christianity started to grow to try and talk about how it was wrong. The one, of, one of the most brilliant things that he points out is, you know, these Christians keep attracting wicked and worthless people. What kind of a religion does that? What kind of a religion goes out of its way to take the worst? Shouldn't you want the best? What a stupid religion. Paul says, no, we're all the worst. You're the worst. I'm the worst. Third, the Psalms that are listed here are mostly of David. Some are talking about his own experiences. Some are not talking about his experiences and his experiences of other people sinning against him. Psalm 31.6, either implicitly or I think or explicitly, is talking about David's own sin. There is no doubt that David saw himself as a sinner. We are but mere verses away from chapter 4 when he's going to talk about what it means to be a blessed man being nothing more than those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Paul will quote David from Psalm 32 there. No one gets to escape from this. David himself fell under the trap of sin. And while it seems somewhat distasteful to Americans to believe this, we are represented by our leaders the bible takes seriously this idea you can actually track it through the bible as you look at first and second kings and first and second chronicles even the passage of our repentance this morning talks about how the kings go sideways when the kings go sideways the nation goes sideways when the kings are good the nation is good as the people go or as the kings go so go the people David is not just a king, but David is the king to which all other kings would be referred to. He is the son of David. He is a king in David's throne. If David is sinful, prone to sin, and needing God's help, there is no one who is outside of that. So let's think through what Paul is actually saying here ever so briefly. Verses 10 through 12. He's talking generally about unrighteousness. No one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. The focus and the emphasis here is on sin and idolatry of all people. My youngest was growing up, and she was much younger than she is now. She would often refer to me as daddy, no, no. Because what she heard me telling her more than almost anything else was no, no. It got to the point where it was a mark of pride for me. My daughter would call me, Daddy, no, no, in front of other people. I'm like, that's right. Daddy tells you, no, no. This is apostle no one, right? He is just repeatedly emphasizing no one. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. At least he throws in all have turned aside in there just for a little bit of a break from the repetition. The point is being hammered home. None of you are good. You can't make it on your own. You're not righteous before God. Verses 13 through 14 and then 15 through 17 turn to talk about two ways, two ways, in which this unrighteousness manifests itself. In 13 and 14, it's about our speech. This unrighteousness is confirmed by the way in which we talk. In listening to people, I'm pretty sure that some people honestly believe that we have a First Amendment protection of free speech not because speech is important, but because they feel like speech is less important. That it doesn't make it to the level of action. That talking against the government is one thing, but actually acting against the government is another thing. One of these is okay, one of these is traitorous, and therefore we have this amendment because speech isn't quite as important. But that's obviously not true. We obviously have the First Amendment because our free speech is incredibly important. Ironically, it's the exact same reason. Because our speech is so important that Jesus has no First Amendment. The government allows you a First Amendment. Jesus offers you none. You are not allowed to say whatever comes to your mind. You are not allowed to speak in whatever manner and whatever tone you wish. Every idle word will come under judgment. Our speech gives away our sinfulness. This list isn't just about evil words. It's about good words spoken with ill intent. It's words of flattery, words of deception, used to get what you want or to push people to bad conclusions. After all, Satan is an incredible encourager of people. Oftentimes we think of him speaking roughly to us, especially when our, our sin is present to us and he is bearing down upon us and our guilt. But more often than not, He doesn't speak roughly to us, but smoothly to us. You will not surely die. He's always encouraging us to walk in the way of death. We, here Paul says, speak like him. It is nothing less than the venom of asps, the venom of ancient serpents that are under our lips. This can be lovely words spoken in a cruel way, cruel words spoken with a lie of love. The picture that Paul paints here is that our words are simply words that are dangerous. They are filled with death, they are filled with deceit, and they are demonic. In verses 15 through 17, Paul turns to violence. Far too often, we consider violence a solution. How often do we as a culture become swift to shed blood? Do you think Possibly we take the deaths of people in this world lightly? Do we understand the gravity of snuffing out the image of God in his created beings? You need to understand this is not a third world problem. It it just, we are an incredibly violent society. Somalia is a war-torn country. And we have a higher violent gun death rate than Somalia. Our death rate by violent guns, violent use of guns, is three times higher than Afghanistan. We are an incredibly violent society. Those are the bad countries. We are 198 times worse than Japan. Although perhaps death by sword there is more common, given the samurai movies I've watched. But by guns, 198 times. According to Britain, we are 99 more times deadly with guns. It's not just bloody violence though, it's ruin and misery that comes in our path. We as a culture have done great violence to our society in the way in which we imprison people. We remove fathers from homes for not minor things, major things sometimes, but for long, long periods of time. When those boys lack a father, what happens? They grow up and they repeat and they perpetuate the very same crimes that their fathers were put in prison for. Our prison system holds more people in jail and in prison than any other country in the world. Our imprisonment rate, six times higher than Canada, five times higher than Britain, 17 times higher than Japan. While we have only less than 4.5% of the world's population, we imprison a full fifth of its prisoners. More than 21% of the world is imprisoned in America. violence the ruin and the misery simply becomes perpetual I'm not advocating for a social policy I'm not telling you this is what we need to do and I'm not bringing forward a law that's going to fix all these things I'm simply pointing out that these things are not true simply in Paul's day and they're not true simply in Somalia they're not true just in war torn countries like Afghanistan they are true here you are not above this Verse 18. Paul returns to the main problem. He says, "There's simply no fear of God before their eyes. We do not respect or fear God. We think Him, frankly, a fine thing to trifle with. And we bank on God not knowing, not caring, simply overlooking our sin." But no matter how you slice it, it is clear that Paul's belief is that our sin is our first and massive problem and that it is everyone's problem. It is not my problem alone, and it is not the problem of the people out there. It is all of our problems. Jew, Greek, Scythian, Barbarian, American, French, Canadian, it doesn't matter who you are. Your problem is sin. The collection of scripture tells us collection of scripture then gives way to the third point this morning in the third section of Paul's text the cessation of speech Paul turns back to the law after all the law doesn't help why does God give the law what good is the law if it's not going to help us to understand kind of the purpose and the place of the law let's return to the most basic outline of scriptural revelation that we can The first basic point is that all people are condemned in Adam. Because Adam has fallen as our figurative head in the flesh, we are all fallen and default before the throne of God to condemnation. We all deserve the death that he was going to suffer. And we will one day, if no one intercedes for us, suffer the same. Yet in the biblical storyline, there comes a time when God pronounces blessing. And he shows up to a man of Ur of the Chaldeans named Abram. And he says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And in the course of time, he says, I'm going to give you a good land that is going to overly abundantly be flourishing for you. And I'm going to give you progeny so that they will fill that land. This is no less than the reversal of what we read in Genesis 3 where God curses He curses and he removes them from the garden, which was perfect and beautiful and flourishing, that they were to fill with their own children. God, removing them from there with curses, now tells Abraham, I will bless you and I will give you a good land, a land that looks like Eden, and I will let you fill it. He's saying, I'm going to reverse the curses that have been brought upon, but only to you and to your family, not to the Egyptians, not to the Chinese, not to the American Indian tribes, not to the the collection of various city-states in Greece or further north into the realms of Gaul and Scandinavia, to Abraham. Therefore, third, to be saved, to experience the reversal of the curse, you must be with Abraham. You must be found in his lineage. Whether that means physical descent or that means you go through the process of becoming one of Abraham's people And eventually this meant you had to deal with the law. For just as God called Abraham, he also called Moses, and he gave Moses a law to all of Abraham's people. There's no escaping from that. So while trusting in the promise of the end of the curse that God had already promised, the law seems to imply, and I do insist it seems to imply, that the way that we would make such a promise come true is through law-abiding faithfulness. Paul says this is not so. He turns back and he says the law only applies to those who are in it. The law has no real true power to save us. It does not have the power to grant life. It simply has the power to condemn. It's not because it's bad or deficient, but rather because it cannot change us. It was not designed to do so. The purpose of God giving the law then is literally to silence everyone. It is so that no one will have a right to justify themselves before him. Even those with the law who know God's good commands and the necessity of keeping them will have no justification on that day. There will be no defense. So overwhelming will be your sin before God. So overpowering the evidence of your own sin. That even those who are most assured of themselves will have absolutely nothing to say in that day. Every mouth will be stopped. So if you are out of the law, you are condemned by default. If you are in the law, you are condemned by the law. This is what Paul means when he says he will hold them accountable. Not as though there's a way out, but given the context of what Paul has said in Romans, he is going to hold you to account in your guilt. You will be found guilty before God. So Paul finishes by summarizing in verse 20. By the works of the law, no one will be justified people equivocate on what works of the law mean i'll tell you works of the law means doing the things that the law requires it's trying your best to keep the commandments of god and paul says you can try with all your might but because you're not righteous you can't do it those who wish to live by the law must live by doing every blessed word that is written in there and you know you don't do it So why give the law? Paul says, because through the law comes knowledge of sin. And again, let us think about what that knowledge means. It is not just cognitive. It's not just that you understand mentally now. It's not just that you have something, a picture of what it means to be evil in your head. I think it means more of an experiential knowledge. You experience true sin. Let's think through the original sin of Adam and Eve again, just briefly. In Genesis 2, God says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So when Eve takes that fruit, and her teeth pierce the skin of that fruit, What happens to her is not magical. It is not mystical. It is not as though God had created that apple with some sort of magic potion in it or some sort of chemical in it that undid everything and that opened her eyes and made her knowledgeable. Its power lied not in itself, but its power lied in the fact that God pointed at it and said, you can't eat that. The knowledge of good and evil came from that. All of a sudden, the minute that her teeth pierced the skin of that fruit, whether it's an apple or more likely a peach, she knew what evil was. She knew what good was. Realize that she would have no conception of what good was. We, good is a relative term. We know what good is because we know what bad is. Isn't it? If everything you eat tastes like the most magnificent steak you've ever had. You don't know that it tastes good until someone comes along and gives you a piece of kale. And then you're like, this is hot garbage. Give me the steaky thing. You know what good is. Eve has no idea what good is. But now she knows what evil is. Because now she has heard the command of her God and she has sinned against him. She experiences what it means to be evil. And therefore she now knows what it means also to be good. This is the very thing that the law does for the people of Israel. Though out, those outside of the law hear nothing from God. They don't know what it means to be able to say, Our God has told us you shall not do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Every Jew has had that experience. Every one of us, upon hearing the law, have had that experience. The Gentiles have a conscience, sure, but they have no confirmed word of God. They have got nothing on tablets. They've got no word that God has spoken to them directly saying, you shall do this or you shall not do that. But those in the law do. And when they do it, they experience sinfulness. And they know they are sinful. The purpose in giving the law is to show that all are under sin. Those who are outside of the law have no knowledge of God. They cannot know him, they cannot see him, they cannot worship him, they cannot please him. Those inside the law have no way to please God. And while they might know of him, while they might understand his commandments, they cannot keep their commandments. They know their sin. This is where the good news, for the first time, truly begins. When you realize that you have nothing to offer God, and when you realize that God has wrath hanging there for you, only when you come to the end of yourself, when you realize that you cannot be good enough, that you cannot do what God commands, that you are utterly helpless outside of God, it is only in that moment that that the good news will truly ever be good to you. For it is here as a sinner that you truly see Jesus as he is. There are plenty of people who think Jesus was this monumental historical figure that changed the course of history forever. There are plenty of people who think that he was a wonderful religious teacher or a wonderful moral teacher. There are plenty of people who understand him as a great worker of miracles, but outside of knowing our sin before him and knowing him in our sin, we will never truly know him as he is. He is a savior of his people. A lamb who sacrifices himself for us. A king who serves his people instead of being served by them. The very help and the refuge of God we're sinful people, friends. I beg of you to know Jesus this way, because there is no other way to know Him. See the kindness of God, not that He is willing to save good and kind people, not that He is willing to save people who go just a couple of degrees astray, not that He's willing to save certain kinds of people. Not that he's willing to save people who pursue the right things. Not that he's even willing to save people who might say the right things. But rather see the kindness and love of God. And that he is willing to save sinners. To love them, even in their sin. To give them life and forgiveness in his son. So that by the work of Jesus Christ by his life and his death and his resurrection and all of his greatness, we might know God not only as a righteous judge but as a wonderful and loving heavenly Father. Let us pray. Our Lord, we stand before you, a sinful people. We know of no one who does what is right before your eyes, who knows you, loves you, finds joy in doing good to others unconditionally, who pursues what is good and speaks the truth fluently. We certainly realize we fail in these things miserably. Just is our condemnation, and right and true would you be to cast us all away from your presence into a death that is never-ending, and yet, despite all of this, you have loved us in your Son. Jesus has given his life for ours, has lived for us again, and makes us one with you despite all of our failings. How good is that news to us sinners? It is water for the parched. It is food for the hungry. It is shelter in the storm. It is air for the choked. It is nothing short of life for the dead. May the praises of this work never find an end. May we always remember your great and steadfast love. And that love found solely in securely and surely in jesus christ our lord we ask these things for our good and for your glory amen will you stand and sing with us our hymn of response come thou fount